everybody, this is Matt Kamen, co-founder of Vision Consulting and the host for now until Ashley fires me of Nonprofit on the Rocks. And Ashley, I'm very disappointed because when you go into the podcast app and you type in nonprofit, I don't come up. We don't come up. Is it you not doing the job? What is going on? I think there's a uh, there's a conspiracy out there. It's Rhea Wong or like those people running how we run or I, some of our competitors have gotten wind of how awesome our podcast is and they are submarining us, Matt, and we need to figure this out. I just don't understand. First of all, to our listeners out there who can't find us on the podcast app, I appreciate you joining in because I don't know what to do about this. I decided we need to write a write-in campaign to Apple. I have no idea how this works, but I am <laughs> actually not happy. Matt is prepared to do some things that are inappropriate if yes. it really comes down to it. He doesn't know who he has to sleep with, really. I'll do it. You will too. You would too, right? I will too. But Matt, we already know I'm a fan of going topless, right? <laughs> I mean, so that's kind of a no-brainer. Our plea to our listener out there, please hit subscribe right now, wherever you're getting your podcasts. If you are so inclined, write a review. We hope positive and give us a five-star rating because you guys, I really honestly do this for me because I can't hear Matt bitch and moan anymore about how we are not on the front of the Apple podcast. Like, I don't have an answer. It's an algorithm that is like some super secret sauce. It's I don't true. know. I think I text you like Saturday night when I'm drunk and looking on my phone and like, why am I not there, right? Like it's, it's Saturday. What's you guys, going? it's really hurting his ego, okay? When his ego hurts, I hurt because I am the one who has to hear about it. Yes. So a plea out there to our listener, please help us out. So I'm super excited about this podcast with my friend Lisa Stein, who is the Chief Financial and Administrative Officer of StoryCorps in New York. It is an amazing organization. I adore Lisa, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear her story, especially when you know we talk about how she was in Paris with me for my engagement to my husband. I'll put a disclaimer on this episode. If you have an empty stomach right now, you need to pause the podcast and go get something to eat because Matt and Lisa, this shouldn't be a nonprofit. This should be in like the food realm because they describe some of the most insane restaurants and some of the most insane dishes they've ever eaten around the world. And yeah, you're just going to want to have some food in your stomach is all I can say. Or booze, or booze, whichever one. Hello, my friend, Lisa Stein. How are you today? I am good. Hello, Matt came in. So the day is you, over for me. Yeah, the day is over for you, not for me. I still have a board meeting after this. And I think uh, I have to sell our services. So like, I'm going to be wasted by the time I get to those. So thank you for that. So you, just so everybody knows, are the Chief Financial and Administrative Officer at StoryCorps. So I definitely want to talk about this. This is a huge job with an amazing organization. But before we do, this is the very first night of Hanukkah. So what do we say in Hebrew? You could okay. say Hag Sameach. Hag Sameach. All right. I remember once for a holiday party at a previous job, I gave everyone dreidels and candy to play at their seats at the table. I'm like, well, what does the dreidel mean? And so I looked up the whole thing and the symbolism and what it translates to is that a miracle happened here. Hmm. And so as you and I know, like Hanukkah just competed with Christmas when we were children. It's not really a big holiday. No, it's no Christmas. It's no Christmas. But this year, I think we could use a miracle. I so. love that. I love everything about that. So I'm going to toast to that. But before I do, what are you drinking? So I'm drinking a peated scotch called Port Charlotte. Oh, 
All right. And I open this up. There scotch it is. is a great winter drink. Yeah, I can't do the peat. I wish I could do scotch. I just can't do the smoky. I don't like smoky. So I'm drinking bourbon, but this is this really cool place. It's called the Traverse City Whiskey Company, not Kentucky. I feel like this is like Iowa or something, somewhere, Michigan. So okay. anyway, I'm going to just pour a little bit. And cheers to that miracle of Hanukkah. God willing. Yes. To 2021, my friend. To 2021. Hmm. Okay. So you and I met because I was running a homeless shelter in New Jersey and you were living in Manhattan. And somehow, I have no idea, I convinced you to cross the river and come join a board of a homeless shelter in New Jersey. Had you even ever stepped foot in New Jersey? Uh, not really. Um, <laughs> I think what was fortuitous was that my office was at Midtown by Port Authority. So it was very easy. And it's the first stop really in New Jersey. So it was a very easy hop over from work. I mean, it's still Jersey, let's be honest. And Port Authority, for those of you who have never been there, please don't ever go there. Port Authority is like the, like, what is it, like the ninth circle of hell. It's horrendous. It's like an underground city. Ugh, I hate Port Authority. You know, I went to the bathroom once in Port Authority and some guy next to me was like just doing dirty things staring at me. I do not like Port Authority. It is my least favorite place in the world. And I think, didn't you get your laptop stolen? Well, I left it because you and I were yakking and I forgot about it. <laughs> but I convinced you, so you joined my board. Um, what made you decide that you wanted to sit on a nonprofit board? You know, I was working at a larger national nonprofit and I just felt a little corporate and a little removed. You know, it was really interesting. I got hired by the finance department in that job, but I started my career in program. Mm. And, you know, when you get hired for one, people don't look at the other traditionally in nonprofit. So you either get hired on the program side of the house or the business side of the house. And I'm really both sides of the house. So it was a way to stay connected to that. And that's what I wanted. And aside from me being the most amazing, spectacular executive director you'd ever worked with, why a homeless shelter? Well, my first job was working in homeless shelters. And I think homelessness is the ultimate failure in our society. It's so many things broke down. You start being homeless like 20 steps before you ever hit a shelter. And then there's just also something really raw and powerful and human, right? You know, you remember from those days in the shelter, if you're open and you're can be receptive. They'll bear their very truest piece of their soul because what do you have left? You have nothing else left. So yeah. I do miss that job a lot, although I don't know about you, but my vocabulary got real dirty running on the shelter. <laughs> like, you know, this is really an aside. I'm sorry because I can talk about myself a lot in these shows since it's about you, but it's really about me. But I was leading a board meeting and I said shit, just shit. All I said was shit. It wasn't even a big deal. And actually, I only said it because the board chair said it. Anyway, and so it was like a Friday. And that weekend, I got an email from one of the board members telling me how terrible and unprofessional that I am and how like couldn't believe that I would say that, but also that he couldn't wait until the following week to tell me they had to tell me on that Sunday because it was like driving him crazy. So just so everybody knows, I like to swear. And that's all because I ran a homeless shelter in New Jersey, where Lisa was my board member. So in terms of being a board member at that shelter, what was, if you remember, I mean, this is like 16, 15, 14 years ago, what was like your favorite thing to do as a board member? What did you enjoy the most? I enjoyed supporting you and what you were doing. You know, you certainly inspired and had clear vision, and I could get excited by that. I think also I had something to offer. It just was another piece of my brain, another part of my toolkit that was not getting used in the, the role and capacity that I was at at the time in my job, and that it helped me feel whole. Hmm. 
So do you yeah. remember one thing that you were able to do, whatever that was? That well, you, you were still- dealing with a board that had a lot of founders yep. and it had been one thing when they started and it was another thing where you wanted to take it. That's what you had been hired to do. And there was a few folk that needed to sort of get on board that train or get off the train. I remember really helping you facilitate that and to be able to do it as a board member and not have to have you do it. Yeah, no, I love that you did that. That was really, by the way, that's like a whole other series is firing your founder. It was great. Do you remember the board chair and one of the board members were dating and I think they broke up at a board meeting? Am I making that up? I don't know if they broke up at a board meeting, but yes, you know. It was always really interesting. (laughs) I once remember another job. It was a bold move I made and I took the job. It was my one ED job. And I was the first board member after the founder. And on my first day, orientation day, she said, oh, by the way, me and the board chair are partners and we live together. Yeah, that's exciting. <laughs> then you were like, this like, is already a bad idea. I'm like, wow, my first day. I'm going to just file that for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many. I mean, that organization had so many. Do you remember that the chef, the cook who was a homeless guy, almost burned down the building because he passed out because he was drunk? Do you remember that? I don't know if I remember that. There were so many things that happened at that shelter. That was such a fun job. I hope that was a fun board tenure for you. It was. It was a good experience. I think I've tried to remember that at times, certainly when I was in ED, and my other experience in evaluating the boards, the organizations that I'm part of. So are you on a board now? I am not on a board now, no. Um, well, I'm on my condo board. I've been on my condo board for a while. No, being on an HOA is a horrible job. Nobody likes you and like everybody yells at you. So like a condo board is the world's worst because you're just going to have people who hate you. So I'm watching you and obviously our listeners can't see us, which by the way is great for me every time, but I'm watching you that room. I love that room because I remember your your apartment in the city, your condo in in the city. We used to live in New York with you and then thankfully moved back here because in the pandemic, you don't have very far to walk around. You don't have a backyard. So now, again, that we're back in a second wave, how are you doing? I mean, you're, you're married to an amazing guy I love. You have a dog that I think I adore. And you live in a one-and-a-half bedroom, right? It's, a it's two bedrooms. Bedroom. So I'm in the, the second bedroom is a den. We luckily did a gut renovation before this pandemic. So we at least really are happy with our apartment because we spent a lot of time in it. But we're sort of like two lions in the cage, you know, just sort of pacing around each other. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all of us who complain in LA or whatever, or anywhere, like, so I was just in Nashville, and I have a friend who bought a 6,000 6, square foot house for a half a million dollars. Can you imagine? I mean, in the city, you can buy a million dollars buys you a closet. So and in LA, I mean, it's not that great. So like, I just, I feel like people who complain in huge houses have no right, because you guys are really, I mean, you can't go anywhere. So yeah. you're stuck in a high rise with, you know, at some point, no water. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, I will move on from that. But I it brings me back to my New York days. And I do sometimes miss Manhattan. But then when I think about being stuck in an apartment, I don't know. I want to learn a, a little bit or I want our listeners anyway to learn a little bit about you and how you got to where you are. A lot of the folks that I'm talking to on this show are executive directors or on board members. But you're on the other side. You're on the admin and finance side. Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose to go into that side of the nonprofit? I think I fell into it more than I chose it. And I think it's not what your CFO today is not what the CFO was of days gone by. Like days gone by, it was some partner from a big accounting firm that thought, oh, this will be like a nice little gig. I was on their board and I'll do this before I really am ready to retire. 
and it's really about risk management and it's a lot of cash management. And if you're able really to have someone who can be a strategic thought partner with the CEO or ED and say, how are we going to make this happen? You know, I started on the program side of the house. I was a sociology major undergrad, but I was really lucky at college. We had a group, we recruited students on campus and we raised some money and we sort of operated a nonprofit and we supplemented the city's social service programs. So I knew I wanted to go into nonprofit and I started working as a case manager in homeless shelters. And when it was time to think about grad school, I had a mentor, this was in the 90s, say to me, go to business school. And at the time, my mother was a clinical psychologist at an agency that dealt with youth with mental health, and her CEO had gone to BU. Hmm. And so I talked with him, and the program allowed you to do an MBA and a master's in nonprofit. And I said, well, okay, you know, I can see the path. I can see where that goes. And by the grace of God, I did as well as I needed to on the GMAT, got myself in met some fantastic people. and was the hardest thing I ever did. There was nothing I didn't have to undo and relearn. I had to study in a new way. Like I was on DOS donated computers. Like I didn't know the internet had pictures until I got to business school and we're in like this modern wired building and everyone's got laptops. And I had to like sit there and figure out how to make windows work. And what do you do with Excel? And how do you, you know, and I just had to be really humble. I've gone back and forth between the program side of the house and the business side of the house. And I really am happier where I'm somewhere that lets me sort of have a foot in each. And the most limiting things have been when I've been hired on one side. You know, I have been hired on the program side. I'm in programs for a large organization where we ran into some fiscal issues and I offered financial assistance. And they're like, well, who are you? Mm-hmm. You know, and then I've, been hired on the financial side and no one sort of validated or wanted to hear about my program side. So I think where I've been the most effective have been jobs where I can leverage both. And that's where you are now. That's where I am now. So I'm curious, actually, I want to go back to the case manager side for one second and then go back to the to where you are now. When you were a case manager, because you could have continued in that world and not gotten to get your master's and you're not, not getting your MBA, but you could have gotten, say, a master's in social work and, and it went that way. So why did you decide to leave the case manager social work world and go into the business world? There were aspects of it that were my calling, but I, it just took an emotional toll. And I think I just had to be honest about that. I was 21, 22 when I started. I was really sheltered and naive. You know, here I was, a nice middle-class white, you know, gender cis woman. And I'm thrown into Hayward, California, and Martinez, California, and Concord, California. And, you know, all of a sudden, I'm working with people who have been homeless, who have been addicts themselves, were of different races and life experiences. And that's a lot to absorb and do the work of sort of understanding yourself and your experience in that and where where and when I should and can be effective and where and when I'm not the right person. So I think there was some of that. And I was young and idealistic and naive. And those are low paying jobs. And a lot of people sometimes take those jobs not with the same agenda and not with their own agenda. And I unfortunately landed in some difficult situations. I did a lot of like just learning by the seat of my pants. You know, I remember one night working the swing shift at the shelter and there was this client who they said on paper, you know, he has multiple personality. I'm like, you know, what, what is that? Mean? I don't know. <laughs> and one night he really had a meltdown 
I can't describe it, but the aura and his face changed. And all of a sudden he was a five-year-old in a 30-year-old's body sitting with me. And I had to get him to take his meds. And I'm like, wow, I am wholly unequipped. (laughs) And finally I was like, well, you know, who takes care of you? Like in his mind, he's the five-year-old. I'm like, who takes care of you? And I finally got him to coax himself into the personality that is plays the older brother role. And again, the face and the aura changed and got him to take his meds. But I'm like, that could have gone a million and other different ways. And I'm not qualified. (laughs) You know, know, he's lucky that I kept trying. It's amazing to me. I don't think people realize the lowest paid jobs in nonprofits really are those jobs that are most important, right? A case manager doesn't make a lot of money, but they're the ones interacting with the clients every day and doing all those things that, you know, you had to go through. So I'm always really impressed with our line staff. I'm always really impressed with our case managers and and they just don't make enough money. So I always kind of push for folks to be able to pay them more. And I know that's hard and nonprofit, but really. And in this day and age in COVID, they are essential. And there's a movement to get them deemed like in New York, they were not getting PPE the way they should have been. I mean, lots of people weren't, but they were right up there. I mean, homeless and housing service providers that are working with vulnerable populations, people were dying of COVID, no one knew, and they needed that stuff as well. And they deserve hazard pay and they deserve all the PPE and whatever benefits you're going to, you know, or accolades you're going to sort of award, rightly so, to healthcare and emergency frontline workers. I think social service frontline workers are right up there. I agree. I agree. And we don't give them enough credit. I agree. Mm -hmm. So uh, I do a lot of board retreats and a lot of meeting with board members and talking to them about what they need to know. You're a finance person. You're the operations person. If somebody listening to this wants to join a board, (laughs) what do you tell them? First of all, run. What I say, run. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of nonprofits have serious cash flow issues. And if they didn't before, they probably do now. And cash flow is king. And you don't want your exec team sugarcoating that, you need to understand that. And you really need to help them get to a place of sustainability and growth. And that's, that is fundraising, but it's also making tactical and strategical decisions about how you operate and plan to get to a place of more stability and making it a priority in the forefront and thinking about who you bring on the board and what they're going to do. So if, if I'm joining a board, right, and I don't know what questions to ask. Obviously, it's got to be something that I care about. So a mission that I care about, fine. But like, what should be certain questions that I should ask before I join a nonprofit board? You know, you can ask the ED or the CFO, whoever you're meeting with, you know, what keeps you up at night? What are the three things you're the most optimistic about? What are the three biggest threats you think on your horizon? What is your biggest obstacle to achieving goals or objectives? Do you feel this is a a good place for your employees to work? Are you providing a good place to work? And if not, have you identified what's missing and and thought about a plan to get there? I like that. I like that a lot because a lot of people don't. I mean, it's so lonely to be an executive director. And so having a board member ask that question, what keeps you up at night? Such a good question. And so important because board members are there to support their executive director, right? Like, that's really important. I love that. So I want to get to what you do at StoryCorps in a second, but you and I have had some really phenomenal meals together. We have. You've eaten at some phenomenal restaurants, I feel like. We have. You've had a lot of wine. I think you may have fallen asleep a few times. Probably. I'm known to do that. 
<laughs> but I don't know if you remember, but we were in Paris together when yeah. I proposed. I proposed to Philip in Paris. I know. And we went out to dinner to celebrate at a really nice rotisserie by... Um, Guy Savoy. Yes. That is a great restaurant. I wonder. And it was a happy time. And you were in Paris and you were in love and you had proposed. What could be better? I mean, it was, and we got to celebrate, which was so cool. I mean, to have friends in Paris was awesome. You know the story. I got a ring. I asked Philip's parents for permission. I did all that stuff. And then when I proposed in Paris, do you remember what he said to me? Do you remember the story? I was like, hey, basically, like, you want to spend the rest of your life together or whatever. And he was like, he said, this is specifically what he said. We're in Paris, staring at Paris. And he said, you know, forever is a long time, man. So why don't we say forever slash long time? (laughs) (laughs) can you believe that you know i go through all this trouble to propose this guy and he's like well i don't know about forever so let's just say a long time right that is my husband your friend so if somebody's going to new york right now well not now post pandemic and all the restaurants god willing are back open again what are your top three restaurants yeah it's so hard for all these restaurants isn't it but we've taken you to the most of them like i'm sure i'm gonna butcher the name I want to say it's Boca Alimentari, the Italian. We went like pre-New Year's Eve and you saw Kathy Griffin there. Oh, yes. That's right. That was a cool restaurant. That was, that a, was really a good cool. one. There's another one called Da Toscano, which opened up um, Minerva Avenue in the village. And it's just so charming. And they've actually have been able to thrive during the pandemic as much as anyone can. So I appreciate that they did that. And it's been lovely food and the people have been lovely. Did we take you to Coke Rico? I don't know. That was the chicken place where all I did was chicken. Oh, it was very French. Good. Like, all we're going to do is chicken, and there's like 20 kinds of chicken. Like, I don't, I, we took Philip. <laughs> French roast to chicken, though, is just How do we, it is divine. I just, I can't, I know it's going to happen. Like, I know it's going to happen again, and like, we're not suffering or anything, but like, oh, I just cannot wait to be able to get on a plane and hang out with you and then go to get some like just fancy chicken. <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, New York has been really creative. Like we've tried to do takeout from our favorites. We've eaten outdoors. I'm not into eating indoors. Yeah, I really feel for them. The government really failed. And it's such a shame because there was so much, you know, it was in the beginning, all that food being wasted by far. Like there was such a moment to think outside the box and try to refigure and configure supply chain and employing people. It was such a failure of leadership to not do it. So. Yeah. I have a lot of friends who left the city, a lot of friends who left New York in all of this, and I don't know if they're going to come back. So New York has been through so much. Do you think it's going to come back like it did, like it was? You know what's so interesting? It's the difference between being in your 50s and being in your 20s during a pandemic. Like, (laughs) (laughs) there is some level where I I have this well to draw on, right? Like, there was a 2008 market crash, there was 11. There was two hurricanes. You know, I've seen some stuff. And while this is different, there's some understanding of process and time, even anecdotally living through the Second Avenue subway that was like an eight year project, you know, 10 year project. But it ended and it's great now. So, you know, I think there are challenges and I don't think it will be, it's not like an immediate V. And there has to be some commitment and some rethinking. Even in this time, there's just moments where you still just love New York. Like when they finally declared Biden the winner. I went to the balcony, like people were cheering and banging pots like they were in the beginning of the pandemic. 
a DJ set up on Second Avenue and there was a street party. There was just giddiness in the streets. The other day, even now, not so much in the peak, you know, we're on Second Avenue walking the dog. And all of a sudden, there's this huge bicycle group coming through. It was a protest. They had a really clever slogan. It'll come to me. But I'm like, it's just like, it's New York. I volunteered at my polling place on election day for the first time. And most of those volunteers, I recognize them. And to have this inside view of their world and their commitment to voting, there's just moments that like that. You're just like, okay. New York. We'll get it. New York is a, is a magical place, magical place, but I don't miss it at all. And I mean, I just like having a, I like having a pool in my backyard, but there are just some things like New York, just the food and the people and the life and God, it's just an amazing place to be. You know, I walk twice a week and I, one day I'll, I'll walk in Central Park and one day I'll walk along East River. And you know, the fact that on the East River, you still need a tugboat to like get your boat up the river. I love that. Or, you know, Central Park, you can really still see raccoons or rare birds or butterflies, like, or you can be in a piece of the park and not know you're in the city. Yeah. All the fireflies. Fireflies are the things that I think are so cool. We don't have that on the West Coast. Fireflies are so cool. So cool. We don't have, well, anyway. So talk to me a little bit about StoryCorps. What do you want people to know about it? Well, probably the, the way people are the most familiar with StoryCorps, you may have heard a story on NPR on Morning Edition. The premise is is that two people have an interview that typically lasts about 40 minutes, and it's a thoughtful, intentional conversation, and then it's recorded and stored in the Library of Congress. And so we are the largest archive of oral history. And then there is a segment of those stories that are produced for Morning Edition, and then for other purposes. And so we do have some theme programs For Thanksgiving, every year we do the Great Thanksgiving Listen, encouraging young people to interview an elder. Obviously, this year in the pandemic, we had to pivot really quickly, and I really commend the organization. We pivoted to a virtual way to do that really quickly. It was painful, but we did it. Listen, honor, share. Everyone has a story, and everyone deserves to have that story heard. There's a nugget, what can be the most mundane to the most rural, to the most politically charged. If you go to our website, you know, that you can search and listen to some stories. Some of them have been animated. It's holiday season. So one of my favorites that I like is, you know how NORAD tracks Santa on Christmas Eve for kids, like where's Santa in the world right now? Do you know how that started? No, I did not. Either did I. (laughs) But the, the adult surviving children of the man who started it did an interview and talked about how it started. And it's a fantastic story. I'll send you the link if you want to put it in the narrative of this interview. I think it's a very sweet one for the holidays. It was a complete fluke accident is how it started. And that's just normal mundane human life. You know, like we don't have anything in Hanukkah. We don't have like Santa. So uh, I don't understand. So as a Jew who was always jealous about Christmas, so there's actually something that tracks so NORAD, which is like the North Atlantic, like radar tracking, like who's in the air, who's doing like strategic defense. It's like a real thing. NORAD's a real thing. Yeah, it's a real thing. And people volunteer and they do like tracking Santa. Where's Santa across the globe? It's a fun thing online. People can look it up online. And this guy worked for the defense department and he had like, this is Cold War, had the red phone. Uh-huh. An unlisted number of like, you're calling that phone. We have a nuclear problem. 
And someone called the phone and he picked it up and it was a little girl asking to talk to Santa. And so I'm not going to give any way more, but it was this fortuitous accident. And then he carried it on and they do it as volunteer every Christmas. That's so cool. Okay. Okay. And then what about Elf Elf on the Shelf? Do you know what Elf on the Shelf is? I never know that. I don't know. Sorry. They didn't come to StoryCorps. I don't understand that. That one's a whole other one that like my nieces, my brother-in-law does that with his girls. I don't understand how an elf is magical and can move around on shelves. Just doesn't make any sense to me. Okay. So I wouldn't be a good enough friend if I didn't talk to you about your husband, whom I adore. How did you and Kareem meet? So we met in business school. We were in the same cohort and you're in a cohort with like 50 students, you know, have your classes all together and you're split out into work groups. And for orientation, they took us to a team building training, corporate training center. And we got paired down to a group and then in a pair within the group and had to navigate an obstacle course where I was blind and he couldn't speak. Okay. And he jokes that it forever set the tone of our marriage, (laughs) (laughs) which we are celebrating. We're coming up on 22 years of marriage. So it's been a minute. I don't know really how that happens. I want you to throw the biggest anniversary party for your 25th that you possibly can. And I want to be there. And here's what I want. I I put this out there. I want you to make so much money. I don't care how rob a bank that you charter a yacht somewhere in the Mediterranean and just fly all your clothes. I'm not going on a boat. It's not happening for me. Fine. fine. Then you rent a castle in Italy. How's that? (laughs) And your chateau in France, whatever you got to do. And let's bring in some of that really good chicken and just eat and drink. That's yeah. all I want to do for like a week. Yeah. Just eat and drink. That's it. Yeah. It's amazing, doesn't it? It does sound amazing. So if you weren't doing what you're doing at StoryCorps and there was something else that you could be doing, what do you think it would be? Or is this it? I very much enjoy my job and I've only been there a little over a year. So I have miles to go. But one fantasy, my ideally, like there'd be some either wealthy donor, angel donor, or conglomerate of angel donors who who wanted to give money to the small groups, not the groups that already have good fundraising and access capital, but for the folks who really don't access the capital and need it, but they need a little help to get to the place they need to be to be able to really use that gift and make it work. And I would be their fixer. So the angel donor would say, I'm ready to give them a million to do that program, but you got to go fix whatever that is. Go in and go fix it. And I would just be their little fixing consultant. And then the group would get their money. That would be an ideal kind of job. I don't know that angel donor. So we're putting it out there for the putting it out there. If there's anybody who would like to do that, but feels like these groups need help. I am a really good cleaner. And then like when I'm really retired for myself, I'd love to have lots of dogs and have dogs with the right personality that they could be therapy dogs. So like, we'll just go volunteer elderly people, kids, whoever we will just go sit with the dogs and do stuff. I love that. I love everything about that. That sounds like a lot of fun to me. I can't believe I will admit this on, you know, because no one's listening to that. I think we have like five listeners at this point. So that's fine. Philip decided to hire a dog psychic to talk to our dog for us. Have you ever done a dog psychic? No. I've done a behavioralist, but not a psychic. Not like a psychic, right? Apparently my dog is an introvert and doesn't like hanging out with us, but loves us very much. So I still can't believe that he did that. Yeah, I would love, I do love Do you feel like your dog treated you differently afterwards? You know what's so funny? It's so funny that you asked that question. I do. I do actually think that she treated us differently and still does. And I don't know... 
I, I, come on, is there really a dog psychic? I mean, can she really be talking to my dog? But anything's possible. She was totally different. She was. But it also could be in my, my head, I guess. I don't know. But I will tell you that my dog is, the whole time I've been here for COVID and I've been home since March, she has not hung out with me in the room that I'm in the entire time. The only time she comes to see me is when she wants to eat. That is it. That is it. So my dog either hates me or just <laughs> hates me. <laughs> has a routine, does her thing. Doesn't want me here. She's like, ugh, why are you still here? Go back to work. I don't want you here anymore. <laughs> so if somebody, if a kid's in college right now and they really want to get into nonprofit, most of them will want to get in, want to be an executive director. That's just what most kids want to do. But I mean, you know, I get that. But if you were talking to somebody and we need folks who are in finance, we need folks who are in programming, we need folks who are in operations. Can you tell a 21-year-old why they should move into the finance operations piece of running a nonprofit? You know, numbers are just another way of telling the story. The numbers permeate everything. You can have the best vision, but if you can't operationalize it, it will flop or not be sustainable. And it doesn't mean you don't have the capacity to have vision or share in vision or support vision. Your toolkit's just different. And I would say, whatever it is you're trying to figure out, there's a lot of paths to getting there, even to being an ED. I might be an ED again. I might not. I don't know. You know, I used to think ED was the pinnacle. I'm not so sure anymore. I wouldn't have that awareness or knowledge if I didn't try things and make some mistakes. I think the main thing I would say to someone is be bold. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Some, you know, I have definitely had spectacular failures and they make me stronger and you learn and you figure out what to do differently the next time. I like that. I, I agree. Like being an executive director is not the pinnacle. It isn't. Having done it, you did it. I've done it. I think all these other roles are so important. So I love that. And I do hope that kids, if there's anybody listening, kids, I can't believe I said that, are listening, that they do think about those other roles that are just as important as being an executive director, really. Mm -hmm. I will tell you, I'm, I hope I did okay today. I'm exhausted because I ran a board retreat today, but I'm wearing pajamas, which is the greatest thing about COVID is I get to be at home. I'm like, you know, I'm wearing a sweater on top. It's not a suit, but pajamas on the bottom. So, and slippers. So. Yep. I have slippers, which I, I just got and I love. It's great. Like COVID is sucks in so many ways, but in terms of work, Hey, I don't have to drive. I don't have to wear a suit. I haven't worn a suit since like 2019. Like it's great for at least showing up to work, but you know, I guess I'm lucky enough to have work too, right? I think the working from home is overrated. I think the euphoria is probably somewhere in between. I think the everyone's hit the like Zoom wall, Google okay. chat wall. I'm so sick of Zoom. So what do you think actually now when COVID goes away, COVID, the vaccine's coming out, COVID's going to go away, or if not go away, at least it will, you know, we'll be able to go back to life kind of. Do you think people are going to go back to work like before? They're just going to be like, I can't do this anymore. You think it'll be a hybrid? What do you think? I think it all depend. I think it depends on your job. I think it depends where you live. What do you want to do? You know, I think there are definitely aspects of our work that need to be in person. I don't think as much needs to be as in person as we assumed. This certainly was a lesson. I think post-pandemic work life needs to be a thoughtful process. I think it's going to be harder than shutting down and getting people set up is thinking about how and, and how you evaluate and create the framework to decide. I don't think it's exactly the same, but I, 
for some organizations, I, I mean, I had a, an operations sort of networking group meeting this morning and some people have broken their lease and they're like, yeah, we're just virtual now. I don't think and, it's going to stay. And I know what we're thinking, but there's some iterations in between. There is something very nice about being at home. There's no question about it. And there's something really nice about being at the office and having like coworkers and like being able to chat with each other and mm-hmm. oh, this Zoom stuff. But it's you. also different, I think, in New York, a lot of people who are home, especially if you're young, you're in a share. So you have your room. So you're like living in a room. Right. Like, I don't think that's really ideal for anybody. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, I'm very, like, and Philip's not here most of the time. So I got the house to myself because my dog doesn't care about me. As I said, you know, I don't hate it. I do not hate it. I do think things will go back. I do think at some point people will forget about it. But I do, you know, for me anyway, I love the idea of a hybrid, right? Like going to the office three days a week and then two days a week not. And because of Zoom, we can travel and we don't have to be at the office and we can still do Zoom wherever we are. So I think that that is actually a, a nice kind of thing to take away from all of this. I think for StoryCorps, I mean, the ability to reach some people that we might not go out physically to interview or, or you can go to the far flungs of the earth or, but, you know, I will say this in terms of what does the future look like? The digital divide is real in this country. Yeah. We have really struggled with people who don't have broadband, have limited technology in their homes with competing needs because everyone was home. You talk about the industrial age and the, like we have got to catch up and it's like the new railroad. We need broadband needs to be like highways. It just has to happen. No, it's true. I, honestly, I count my blessings every day. Seriously. Like I'm very, very, very lucky. And you're right. I think a lot of us complain, but we don't have, we really, what are we complaining about? Right. Well, two things. First of all, how do we get this on StoryCorps so that this podcast can go viral? Like we can just go crazy. You need to like publicize this, Lisa. I want more than five listeners, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) The second thing is my favorite question in the world that I totally stole from another podcast, only one of two podcasts I've ever listened to. Tonight is your final meal before tomorrow we electrocute you in the chair. What is your final meal? Oh my God. Well, first of all, a fantastic bottle of wine that pairs with whatever I'm eating and a lovely French prepared steak frites with preferred to roll for dessert. Mm, makes me very hungry. Can you have steak on Hanukkah? I feel like Hanukkah is like not great food. Jewish food is not the best food, let's be honest. Well, I mean, you're supposed to eat fried food. I mean, first of all, I love latkes, but do I want to make them in a small New York apartment? I do not. I have no window I can open to let out all that grease and odor. It will smell for days. Yep, for sure. And if this was non-pandemic time, I would just go to Second Avenue Deli and order some and eat them fresh. Now I have to go take them out from somewhere and reheat them, which will be a little bit meh. We're supposed to have a potato pancake for those of us um, listening who don't know what a laka is, mm-hmm. um, and probably some like chopped liver, jelly, jelly donut, donut. Brisket. I mean, but isn't brisket's always the default? You would have brisket with your latkes brisket is every single Jewish food. You know what's so amazing to me? And I think this is so terrible that we did this. So what you're supposed to give to kids on Hanukkah is the gold coins, right? Like mm-hmm. pocket covered in gold, in, in gold. But like the stereotype of Jews is that we have all the money. And yet here we are giving gold coins to our, to our kids on Hanukkah. We are not good to ourselves. Let me tell you that right now. Well, here's my question for you. You did lovely Hanukkah decorations to your house that I've seen. Have you, are you ready? Are you decked out? 
So for those of you who don't know, I live in a very goy, a very Gentile, a very Gentile neighborhood. And so I chewed up my house and I put on a huge Jewish star and lights everywhere, blue and white lights. And I am not ready for Hanukkah. It's like totally stuck up on me. I can't believe tonight's the first night. I hope you're going to do that this weekend. Oh, I got to do something. No, I know. We got to do something in the pandemic. You know, you're supposed to celebrate with family, but that's not happening. We will make those potato pancakes. And or Philip will make them. I will okay, yeah. I say go for the lights, man. Winter is here and it's dark. It is dark. It is. Well, anyway, my friend Lisa Stein, thank you very much for joining me today. I hope thank you enjoyed yourself. And, and uh, uh, may we all have a miracle to end this year. I love that so much. May we have a miracle on this first night of Hanukkah to get to 2021 and to get better so that you can rent us that mansion, that like castle in Europe and uh, celebrate your 23rd wedding anniversary. Thank you very much for joining me. And uh, you're going to make us viral on tour again. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Matt. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. Are you hungry after that podcast with Lisa? I am sitting here in front of a buffet of food. In fact, I just took a pause, got out my Julia Child cookbook and made Coco Van in the middle and, <laughs> and then resumed listening. I love that. I feel like that would make it better, actually, if people just sort of like turn it on, hear the beginning, walk out and come back. They're going to give it five stars, right? Immediately. 100%. Everyone is happier when they have food in them. So, yeah. and booze. And and booze. Let's not forget that. Nonprofit on the rocks. Let's not forget that. I want to tell you something though. I want you to be prepared for this. Don't you're sitting, right? You're sitting. You're sitting. I'm sitting down. So I think that I may do like a dry March. How do you feel about that? Wait, 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 wait. And when you say dry, you mean like no rain, right? Like you're not gonna shower for the month of March. Like Please clarify, because you cannot possibly mean it in the no boo sense. No, 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 no. I know. I know that. I have had like 18 friends talk to me about how they went on a cleanse in January and like how they're feeling better and sleeping better and looking better. And I'm like, uh, I don't want to do it, but I feel Matt, like I'm Were those 18 people all in the same room at the same time talking to you about how you may have a problem? Because that's <laughs> called an intervention, sweetheart. <laughs> So like, we'll see what happens. But if you come back in March and the podcasts suck, just know it's because I haven't been it's drinking. It's because you've had a dry March. It's going to be really hard. And you're going to be really cranky and yes. I'm going to have to deal with it. Yes, so you are. You are. That's going to be, it's, uh, thank you for making me sit down so that I could sort of absorb <laughs> what's to come. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. We'll see. Look, I'm weak. I'll see what I can do. So uh, I am super excited about our next interview with Wendy Carpenter, who is one of my friends who runs a huge, huge, huge nonprofit in the Valley in LA working with foster youth. And she's awesome. As a reminder to our listener out there, if you didn't already do it at the top of the show, please subscribe to us. You can go to our website, envisionnonprofit.com. Or you can sign up wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you click subscribe and give us ratings. And then also, if you want to be on our show or you know somebody that you think would make a good guest on our website, please fill out the form letting us know about guest submissions. Awesome. All right, everybody. Well, enjoy your evening of booze and Coco Van and whatever else you feel like doing. Maybe just daydreaming about Paris and whenever we can get on a plane again. And on that note, Ashley, thank you. Thanks, Matt.